Adaptive Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Sarah Martin, Associate Principal at HED, an architecture and engineering firm. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hugh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about what your main focus, it appears, is, which is data centers. You want to talk a little bit first, though, about your own background and, and what HED does? Yep. So HED is an architecture and engineering company. We pretty much span the gap of all the different areas in architecture and engineering. So we have multiple sectors within the company. I'm part of the mission critical sector. So as you said, I primarily focus on the data center design portion of it. So I went to school for architecture. I was pretty burnt out from architecture side of things, and I knew I needed to you know, do something with that degree, but also wanted to do something slightly different. So I was looking for some a company that was focused on architecture and engineering and, and an integrated approach. So I found Integrated Design Group, which designed data centers and was acquired by HED four or five years ago now. So we have about 20 years, I think actually more than that now, of experience designing data centers as a company and have kind of done that across the country. So we're, you know, we have offices all over the country, but we also do full services all over the country. So we can do architecture, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, fire protection, fire alarm, structural, landscape, kind of pretty much everything but civil we can do from the design side. And typically we'll do that from, you know, day one, whether that be the, you've, some of our clients, even it's even before they acquire the site and all the way through to the closeout of the project. So, you know, your punch list at the end and any closeout procedures for the client type of thing. That's awesome. Well, this is obviously a growing area to say the least. And one of the things I know you are, are focused on is the fact that data centers are an enormous draw of energy. And that has implications on a number of levels, cost being one, but also, of course, the green side of things. You know, as you design these, what is the green perspective? I know that's a really broad question because I'm not all the way sure where to start. Um, where, would, where would you start in talking about sort of a green approach to data center design? So I always start this with kind of the big picture step back for people because a lot of, a lot of individuals don't necessarily know what a data center is, right? And so there's always this commentary of like, oh, they're using so much power. And at one point there was an article that was put out there of like, oh, they're just doing Bitcoin, but it's like, no, data centers are doing a lot that, you know, we all kind of rely on on a day-to-day basis. So one of the things that is always interesting to me is everyone's like, oh, well, you know, it takes so much power, but it's like, well, do you want Netflix? Do you want, you know, TikTok and, and all those things? Because those go somewhere. And that's essentially what the growth of the data center industry has been fueled by over the past five years or so has been primarily you know, the bigger kind of social media or streaming platforms. Right now, we're kind of looking at more AI pushing that boundary, but, you know, it it does come down to user interface, right? And so what is confusing with data centers is they are inherently efficient facilities because when you're building something at such a scale and with, you know, the intent of this data center is designed for the power usage, right? It's designed for the servers versus a hospital that's designed for people's comfort, those metrics and those parameters change how you do your design, right? And so in your data center design, you are inherently looking for your most efficient system to meet whatever 
set points you have for what you need to maintain within the room for the, the cooling and, you know, all those types of things. And then on an electrical level, you really want to make sure you're not having any wasted load or stranded load or redundancy that isn't necessary because like I mentioned, the the scale at which that these are being built, no company wants to put in all this money into a, a building that doesn't need an extra level of cooling or extra level of power type of thing. So in themselves, they already are very efficient. I would say from a trending perspective of where we're going in that is probably kind of three areas that you're looking at right now. One of them being materiality. So that one is always kind of a hard one when it comes to data centers, because while the construction industry has come a long way when it comes to, you know, having reduced carbon concrete or whatever the product is, we've made a lot of progress there. But when it comes to a data center and you're trying to offset, you know, 36 megawatts, it's not going to necessarily do that. So then it goes to your cooling and your electric. So cooling, we've seen a push for liquid cooling, which essentially is just bringing cooling direct to the rack as opposed to an air cooling system where you, in theory, lose as your air is kind of transferring from the unit to the rack, you end up losing some of your cooling. It may not be a substantial amount, but bringing the cooling directly to the rack and directly to the chip is a more efficient approach. You're also using a liquid at that point in time, which is more dense and more is going to hold that that temperature better than the air is going to, to be able to reduce your loss when it comes to the cooling capacity. And then power, the biggest thing we're seeing is a shift or hasn't quite turned into a shift yet, but it's the interest is growing in alternate power sources. So in the past, we've seen a lot of the big companies like Meta, Google, Microsoft, et cetera, using this thing called the Renewable Energy Credit, which essentially they've worked with a developer to, whether it be a solar farm or wind farm, whatever, they've developed a site that provides X amount of megawatts. And from there, they use that as a credit to offset their their use on the grid. The solar plant hasn't you know, necessarily served the data center itself because of the limitation of solar is not always consistent, right? Like you have a bunch of cloudy days in a row. It's not going not gonna to yep. keep the load going, but it's also a power storage issue for them. So it's a more kind of a, a trade-off than it is a like direct power source. But what we're starting to see is now an interest in trying to utilize existing power sources or use like small nuclear reactors and on-site power generation. So we've started to see the use of uh, nuclear reactors that are already existing and may not be actually being utilized to the full capacity that they are and trying to use those so you're no longer um, using the capacity from the grid, right? Because while it's still a power draw, it's avoiding the impact to the stability of the grid in different regions, right? Because like Northern Virginia right now is in a situation where they can't build fast enough to keep up with the power demand and, and things like that. So it's getting creative, but also trying to get away from impacting the community type of thing and, and not limiting the power consumption or potentially having issues with overexerting your grid type of thing. That's an interesting one. I just want to dig in real quick because I, I, I worked at AOL many moons ago in Northern Virginia. It was one of the first large data centers. This is obviously in the 90s. And it, you make me think that one of, the, one of the huge considerations of where to put these things 
data centers, of course, is is the power situation where they are. And, and is that the kind of thing that governments will use to entice and say, hey, we'll, we'll build something or we'll fortify something or we'll make this you know, make the power availability better than other other options. It seems like the volume of power is so high that that's a big consideration for where you put things. I mean, now that I say it, it sounds obvious, but is that an area that, that governments compete like tax credits? Yeah. So there's, it's kind of funny because while there's this push and pull with the community, right, where I'd say Northern Virginia is probably the loudest with the community being like, we don't want data centers. There are plenty of states that have actually made adjustments to their tax credits type of thing to bring in data centers because it does have a huge impact on the community from a bringing in money perspective. Like Northern Virginia has grown exponentially over the past 10 years from a development side of things because of the data center growth in that area. So yeah, the from a from a tax credit perspective, yes, 100%. The two things, or there's really three things that are kind of like, these are the drivers, sorry, four because of the tax credit one, but the, the cost of land, the cost of power, and telecom. So part of the reason why Northern Virginia is the way it is, is there's a telecom line that goes over to Europe that like, if you look at the telecom maps in the world, they're, the, the amount of communication that comes in through Northern Virginia area is absolutely insane. They have a number of connections to Europe and different parts of the world through that area. So it's a little bit of a, you know, New York's too expensive, Boston area is too expensive. Northern Virginia kind of won out from the East Coast perspective as well. It's it's proximity to DC type of thing. Yeah, I wonder if there was something going on in the 70s, even back to the 60s with the government that laid down infrastructure that just built on itself. But it's a second question. I got to ask you about nuclear. So there, you keep hearing about, you know, small nuclear reactors or, and or, you know, development where you, you don't necessarily need to spend, you know, $20 billion on something that's, that's massive and has all sorts of design issues where people are looking at adding like almost an encapsulated nuclear power. I, it's early and I don't know, I don't think any of these have been deployed, but is this part of the conversations? Again, not with, without saying anything that's untoward. But is it in the conversation now that we want to think about how to design around these things or is it just on the horizon? Yeah, I would say we're still probably five to 10 years before you start seeing, you know, it to be a trending thing within the industry. But it is something that people are trying to talk about. And the reason or at least the sense of the reason why I get it's kind of becoming a trending topic is because we know that there's somewhat of a a stigma around it. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, different different groups and agencies within the industry who kind of help, you know, set the the rules around what works and what doesn't work and what's, you know, what is considered acceptable for redundancy and all those different things. And so nuclear has never really been on the list from that perspective. So it's kind of a, a, a shift in the industry that requires kind of your, your subject matter experts to all kind of chime in because I think there's one company that has done it they haven't done the small nuclear they tied to an existing plant mm-hmm. and it's they're not a company that we currently work for so i don't have the latest and greatest on the information but it sounds like it hasn't like completely taken off and that there's still some hesitancy on selling it type of thing so i think it's one of those things where people are are discussing it more and more now to try to get people behind it because we know that you know if northern virginia is running out of power i think 
there's also been conversations of that in Texas, other regions that have been kind of booming over the past few years. If that's the case, and now you're looking at AI driving up the loads basically two to three times of what we have built over the past five, 10 years, that's going to be a massive power drop, right? Like we're already talking about, I think it's one megawatt is around a thousand houses. And so when you start comparing that to, you know, a 80 megawatt facility, we're, we're going to be pretty, pretty substantial in the, the power percentage across the world pretty quickly. And so when it comes to that, we have to start getting creative if this is really going to be able to maintain. And I think nuclear is one of the ways that we can have a consistent power. Ultimately, we're, we're saying that between electrifying cars and other things and generally moving various sources of energy to a grid, the grid totally has to change. But I mean, our ability to transmit that level of, of power, it just doesn't exist, certainly not at the you know, at the densities you might be talking about. But to the point you're making, just the, just the cloud alone is going to continue to grow. And then when you add on to it the massive compute for AI systems that apparently have no bound, it's a lot of demand on, on a power grid that is just made for light bulbs. Let's shift gears to what you focus on. This, that was a really nice backgrounder. I appreciate the context. What, do you, what is your job principally about and, and you know, what does HED do? Like what kind of what's the thing you guys talk about the most? Yep. So I am a sector leader, which essentially means I kind of wear a number of hats. So I primarily do client management, but with that kind of comes sales as well as program management and sometimes project management. But essentially my role is to kind of understand the big picture goals of the client, make sure that we kind of develop a partnership relationship as a company. We really prefer that type of relationship with a client because it kind of lends well to making sure that the, the project's going to be successful as well as developing a relationship that can mean we can work together long term. Because of the way the industry is, there's a lot of repeat work. And so we'd rather build a relationship where we can have open, honest conversations as opposed to a one-off thing and then kind of walk away. Because the more we understand the, the company, the goals, what the actual individual who's running the project's goals are, all those types of things, the better we can provide a design that meets the end goal, right? So for what we do, as I mentioned before, we kind of go from day one. So depending on the client, sometimes they'll bring us in when they're starting to look at a site. So this would be prior to acquisition and they'll have us do what we typically call test fits. And essentially depending on the client, depending on what their use case is. So typically there's a couple of different groups, but primarily in the market right now, it's multi-tenant data centers and hyperscalers. So multi-tenant data centers is basically a developer. So it can be like Compass, Digital Realty, NTT, Prime, a number of companies across the country who are all basically landlords at the end of the day. They'll develop the data center, build it. They all have slightly different models of what they'll do once it's been built, but they typically will bring in a hyperscaler or another company that'll lease out that space. So for them, usually there's a kit of parts. So we've worked with a number of them or the developers over the years to develop their kit of parts with them and develop their standards and, and design guidelines. But when I say kit of parts, essentially what that means is like, okay, so if we're going to base your system off of a two megawatt block, what does that translate to? 
what are your what are you ultimately trying to achieve? So in the past, we've helped a client kind of grow through the last kind of growth spurt that happened in the industry about five years ago. So at that point in time, we were looking at like 1200 KW data halls, and that grew exponentially over about a year time frame, and it went up to six megawatts. Now we're looking at eight and 10 megawatt facilities or data halls, not necessarily facilities. And so we've been able to kind of work with, okay, this is your, your quote unquote kit of parts, right? And so maybe that's a slice of the yard that contains your generators, your panels, et cetera, of what you need within the yard, and then translates into your UPS rooms and then into the data hall. And then how many of those quote unquote blocks do you need? So is it going to be a two megawatt data halls, can be six megawatt data hall, that type of thing. So you have that expandability. And then similarly with the layout of the data hall itself, kind of being able to work through, okay, with that expandability, how do you do your layouts for your mechanical and kind of work through the kind of restrictions as that growth has happened over the years. So now we're kind of at a point where there's a little bit of flexibility or a little bit of um, standardization, I guess is the better way to say that, because we're seeing more, you know, eight megawatt range data halls. So that's been a little bit consistent. I wouldn't be surprised if that's going to start going up again because of the AI conversation and the density of your rack. So essentially, when you talk about density of a rack, if you're looking in the past of like a 6KW per rack, right, we're now starting to talk more along the lines of 100 kW plus. There's been some conversations around some companies going all the way up to 300 kW plus. So, and, and Sarah, if, if I can just ask, because this is not something I know about, when you say kilowatts per rack, what is a rack? So, it- a rack is basically a giant computer. So, it's it's your server rack. So, your desktop tower. Imagine that kind of on steroids a bit. Usually, they're somewhere around two foot by four foot. And it depends on which rack you're selecting, but you know, six foot tall, somewhere in that range. So they're, they're essentially just filled with servers and that can depend on what they're, what they're going to be providing, right? If they're more of a storage rack, there's a different configuration versus a compute rack. And what I was saying earlier about liquid cooling, bringing the cooling directly to the rack. Now the rack now has components in it that you can run the piping for the cooling directly through the rack. And then essentially you have a, a whole bunch of cabling coming out of it, which will be your telecom connection. And there's usually like fan configurations in there. And now that we're looking at liquid cooling, that's kind of swapping that out. But essentially it's your it's very similar to your computer tower that you've seen with your, your desktops, right? Really interesting. And I'm a, I mean, I've seen data racks many years ago. I have to imagine it's a really different beast than what it used to be. I mean, just the amount of utilities, for lack of a better word, that flow through it compared to before where it was, you know, plug the power in is pretty wild. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I've heard a number of times that people are like, oh, you know, telecom is going to be less of an issue when it comes to AI. But at least the people that I've talked to and the projects I've been involved in, that's not been the case. Like it's been more of a conversation on, hey, can the rack actually support the amount of cabling that needs to go in? Like huh. the openings at the top of the rack aren't as big as the cables they're trying to they're bring trying to bring into the rack now. So yeah, it's it's exactly what you said. It's it's just kind of pushing the same metrics or the same components to the extreme at this point. They've 
gone up exponentially in in weight over the past few years as well. And I mean, they're densifying at all levels. This is, this is essentially what it is. The numbers are just crazy. Well, you, you mentioned before the three levers that you you can pull or work with to make a, a facility more green. You mentioned materiality, you mentioned cooling, you mentioned power. Where do you spend most of your time? I, I mean, you mentioned that you know the materials you're using, first of all, don't sound like they're the highest lever point anyway. And they're a lot slower moving and a lot less under your control. Where do you spend the most time? Is it on, on power or is it on cooling or, or, or something else? So I would say for every discipline, it's a main focus for us, right? So while there may be a limitation when it comes to materiality, our architects are, you know, always looking for the newest technologies and always looking for where we can kind of push that needle. Right now on the impact from what we have control of, I would say it's probably going to be coming from cooling. And the reason why I say that is that the electrical designs overall, they went from like a a 2N system, which is essentially you need two times the equipment that you need to power the space. Trying to make sure that I say that in a way that is understandable. But the goal there was that you have redundancy, right? So if one unit went down, then the other unit would pick it up. So over time, that has transitioned from 2N, so two times, or a now a five to make four or six to make five or whatever, which essentially means the kind of loading blocks that I was talking about earlier, you have one spare as opposed to um, in the past where it was you know double whatever the original was. So that one spare will pick up if one system has an issue. So that already has kind of made a significant impact from a redundancy perspective. And then there's also been kind of the shift in how people are thinking about things. So companies have kind of shifted away from needing redundancy at the actual data center level. And some of them have looked towards, well, one, does this data need to be live 24-7? And if not, then can we reduce the redundancy? Two, they've done regional redundancy, which essentially is, okay, we have a data center in Virginia that has this this specific set of data. Then you go over to Texas, they have the same, they have kind of a twin. So instead of needing the redundancy on an electrical level or mechanical level, they've been looking at it from a regional level so that they have their data in, in multiple locations type of thing. So mechanically, I would say is the biggest impact right now. And that's looking at um, liquid cooling primarily. How much, well, the other, obviously the other driver of, of performance is the, the chips themselves. And I always wondered about this. As you're designing these, what happens when a new chip design comes out? Because they do obviously quite frequently. And in the case of AI, there's a, even more movement than there is in sort of classic server chips. What do you do? Do you, do you swap the whole rack out or do they swap pieces of it out? Or does that really depend? So um, we don't do the design at the rack level. So typically it doesn't impact us, but I will say that sometimes that has impacted from the bigger picture design parameters. So it's kind of goes back to some of the things I was saying earlier about looking at higher densities. Mm -hmm. That's been the biggest thing on the kind of development of the chip recently is that they've been able to consolidate within a rack and go for a higher density. So for us, a lot of the times when that stuff happens, primarily it happens prior to when we start design, but sometimes it happens in the middle of things. But usually that's something they, they the company kind of has to know what's going in day one if they're they're designing to that level, because you don't necessarily need to have the rack design resolved 
for your data center design, you definitely can kind of work on those things concurrently type of thing, but you don't necessarily like a lot of the multi-tenant data center providers that we do designs for, they have no idea who's going into their space. So at that point in time, you're designing it a little bit more generically of we're expecting however many KW per rack or per row and the cooling and power is kind of designed around that those assumptions. So for us, it doesn't have as much of an impact. I would say usually the, the impact is if if the design or if the client is taking it to that level, the impact can be more of a, you know, there's a lot of discussions internally and in making sure that we get all of the inf- the latest and greatest information so that we we are moving off of, you know, the right sized rack or the right cooling requirements type of thing. Love it. I've really learned a lot. I mean, I, I obviously am a big user of cloud AI and all of the above. So I'll bring this one into a, for landing. How do you see this moving forward over the next couple of years? So I, I think the industry is going to continue to boom. I think, you know, the AI conversation is going to have an impact on it. I do think, you know, a lot of the technologies that kind of the world is interested in and is really trying to push towards. So even like autonomous vehicles, they're going to require a lot of data centers. It's just going to be kind of the reality of it. So I think the industry is looking towards a lot of change quickly and a lot of problem solving, which to me is kind of what we we love to do, right? Like we want to be involved with how do we help develop the most sustainable data center? How do we develop the best kind of use case for whichever client we're working with and making sure that it aligns with what they ultimately are trying to achieve? And then also the biggest thing that I think right now everyone is kind of trying to solve for for the future is the future proofing aspect of it because you know there we're at a point where there's a significant amount of change that we already know as well as on top of that we know that there's a lot of things that we haven't quite you know figured out yet right so from a future proofing perspective a lot of companies are now looking at really diving into what is their kind of capacity that they're they're designing their prototypes around, but also making sure that there's flexibility within that prototype. So it's essentially looking at, okay, we might be able to get away with air-cooled right now, but we know within five years we're going to be either fully liquid-cooled or you know partially liquid-cooled. So our new prototype has that flexibility built in, and then we can scale up as we need to, those types of things. So I think you're going to see more and more of that kind of hybrid approach over the next couple of years. And then after that, it's going to be a lot more opportunity to come up with some newer ideas because I think we're, you know, as I mentioned, I think we're going to have to get creative depending on on what the, the use case is. You know, AI has its requirements. Autonomous vehicles have their requirements. Social media has their requirements. So it's going to be just depending on, you know, the biggest power draw at that point in time. That makes sense. I'll ask one last question. I've read about Google using AI to optimize certain aspects of their data center operation. That sounds a little bit like it's operating, not building, but is that a part of the equation? Yeah, that is, honestly, it's one of those things that I'm hoping kind of comes out of this AI conversation because a lot of things that we just talked about is more on the operations or the impact of AI on the data center growth, Mm -hmm. but there's also the AI impact on design. So what Google does, or at least what I understand what they do, they use AI to monitor live weather data Mm -hmm. to combine that with an AI that monitors their live loads. 
So say that they're only using 70% of their capacity within their data hall. It's a cloudy, rainy day or whatever. What with those two, with those two kind of metrics together, what is the most efficient way to run your mechanical system? So with that, that's like highly operational, right? Uh-huh. But what I think and what I we've kind of seen and have been starting to dabble with as a company is starting to look at softwares that also help bridge that gap. So whether it be a, you know, it may not be quite AI yet, but it, maybe it's a software that is a step in the right direction and better understanding the building systems and being able to do kind of energy modeling and all those types of things. And so data centers are very hesitant to share that data, but I, mm-hmm. one of my secret hopes is that over time, some of that stuff that, you know, the companies that are monitoring their live loads and they are monitoring their data centers are able to kind of share some of that, because I would imagine that if you compare that design software with that data, you could, you know, help bridge that gap even further of, you know, in Loudoun, Virginia, this is the most efficient mechanical system, or this is the electrical design that has the most efficient, you know, loads to the floor type of thing. So I think that technology is also is already awesome as it is. But I think I'm hoping that over the next few years, you'll start to see that push even further of how do you kind of take some of that information and better analyze it through AI and figure out a better design at the end of the day that kind of responds to those two things. Love it. This has been fantastic. Sarah, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me here.